once again to the Perimeter Church podcast. In one of Job's replies to his friends, he confidently states, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. In today's text, David similarly declares, The Lord accepts my prayer. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this message entitled, He Hears Our Tears, which covers Psalm 6. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning, Perimeter. It's good to be here with you this uh, Sunday after Christmas. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, open them up. They'll just go to the middle of the book, to the book of the Psalms. We're going to go to chapter 6. And this is a chapter of Scripture that may seem a bit strange as we're coming out of the Christmas season. But I think it's actually a perfect fit. Because what we did in Christmas is we celebrated this beautiful gift that God has given us, that his son has been sent into this world to redeem everything that's broken. But even as we celebrated that, we're all struck by this reality that that Jesus who has come to redeem, he has not yet redeemed in full. He's come, but we're still waiting for the day when he comes again which means that in this life, we are still living in a world where sin still is present, where pain and brokenness and sorrow are still things that we wrestle with. And the question that comes to every believer is as those who live between the already and the not yet, how are we supposed to respond? And not just that, how are we supposed to engage with our God in a world that is still broken and as people who are still broken? And this is why I love the Psalms. If you've never spent a lot of time in the Psalms, let me strongly encourage you to start doing that because if you want to know what it is to engage with God, the Psalms are there that you would know it. God shows you in the Psalms how you can approach him and he doesn't just show you how, he gives you the very words to do it. And you see this in Psalm 6. Let me read this to us. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemineth, a Psalm of David, O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, the afterlife... Who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is God's word, let me pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would take this word, this text that we just read, Lord, this prayer of David, which was written down so long ago. And Lord, we pray that you would wield it in our midst as the God-breathed and God-breathing word that it is that, Lord, you would cut to the division of soul and of spirit and of bone and of marrow, and you would discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And, Lord, you would expose us 
Expose us for what we actually are, for where we actually are. But Lord, more than that, we pray, show us your Son in all his glory, in all his sufficiency, in all his beauty, and give us hearts that would cling to him more strongly than they did when they came in this room. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you've ever hung out with me, you'll realize very quickly uh, that I am a little bit of a music junkie. Uh, I love listening to music, music of all kinds, all different genres, and it is a pretty much constant thing in my home. Uh, I listen to it while I'm washing the dishes. I listen to it while I'm mowing the lawn. Uh, I turn it on when I'm doing things as simple as walking from one room to another, and it drives my wife absolutely insane because we have three little girls all under the age of four, and they're screaming all the time, and I add to it music because to me, that's soothing, opposite for my wife. And if you're into music like I am, you all have these certain albums that just stick out to you more than others. These albums that resonate, these ones that you've listened to so many times that they have taken up mental real estate in your brain. And all you have to do is hear one chord from that album and suddenly you find yourself singing the rest of the song. You know the whole thing. It's been burned into you. Well, one of those for me is an album that on first glance is a little bit strange. It's a cover album by a guy named Ryan Adams of Taylor Swift's 1989. Now, I like both of those artists, but this is not exactly a musical marriage that you would expect. I mean, Ryan Adams is the king of depressing alternative country. He's a guy who makes beautiful music, but it's the kind of beautiful music that makes you wanna go sit in a corner and just cry by yourself because you're lonely and depressed. Uh, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift, on the other hand, she's the queen of danceable pop. She's the one who has mastered the danceable beat and the catchy chorus, the one who finds a way to use words in such a way that you hear it once and you literally, even if you want to, you cannot escape it ever again. And yet these two seemingly radically different musicians, they come together on this album in a way that to me feels absolutely perfect. And I couldn't put words as to why until I found this blog post that James K. Smith wrote about it. And he said, here's why this album's so good. It's because for the very first time, for the very first time, the music told the truth about Taylor Swift's lyrics. That behind all the danceable beats, behind all the catchy choruses, all the smiles, all the glittering, all the glitter and all the posturing, are songs not of joy and of happiness, but of sadness and of sorrow and of brokenness that end in a place where there is absolutely no discernible hope. And where Taylor Swift invites you to just try to muster up your own strength and dance past the pain, Ryan Adams, Ryan Adams makes you sit in it. And he doesn't let you leave. And he offers up a cry of sadness at the brokenness of a world that he is absolutely powerless to fix. He invites you into a world that the Bible calls lament. Lament is not something most of us are comfortable with. You don't find it in much of our worship music. You don't find it in many of our services, but it's something that makes up over 40% of the Psalms. 
You know, we'd rather sit in things that make us happy, in things where we can declare victory and in the hope of future promises, but the truth is that lament, while it may not be a world we're comfortable with, it may be a world we run from, it's not a world that any of us can really escape. Because to lament is simply to be honest about the world that you presently inhabit. It's to speak honestly about this world where pain and sorrow and brokenness are still real things, a world where marriages crumble and fall apart, where cancer claims the ones that you love, where children that you have raised up in the faith, children you have prayed for every day of their lives, that you have wept over and cried over, those very same children may grow up and one day walk away from the Jesus you so love. A world where sin is not just something that affects people out there in the distance, but rather it is something that still rages in your own heart and affects your own life. And as those who live in that world, the world between the already and the not yet, sometimes, sometimes as God's people, we don't know what to do. David in Psalm 6, he says, here's what you do. You don't hide your pain. You don't try to dance past it. You don't paste on a grin. Instead, you offer up a cry of sadness at the brokenness of this world that you are powerless to fix. And you throw every single bit of it at the feet of the only one who can actually heal. The God of compassion who hears your tears and who promises in Jesus to one day wipe them all away. He says first in verses one to three, come with your anguish. Look at what he says. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Literally, I am a leaf on the vine that is drying up and dying and is about to crumble into dust. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. They are shaking, trembling, rotting away within my soul. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, Yahweh, Savior of Israel, how much longer? You know, when people come to us and they ask us how we're doing, we all have the same reflexive response, don't we? We say, I'm good, I'm doing well, I'm doing okay, how are you? And we typically try to deflect the question. We cover up what we're actually feeling, we may tell people just a little bit about what's going on in our lives, but very rarely, unless you are uh, an anomaly, very rarely does somebody respond to that question and say, well, you know, my dog died today, my mom is sick, I lost my job, my life is miserable, how are you? No one does that. If you do, you only do it because you are in the presence of somebody that you know and you trust, and even then, even then, you hide just a little bit, don't you? Because there is that fear that if you speak the truth and you are known, that people are going to throw up their hands and say, you are a burden that I do not want to deal with. Notice what David does. David, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't put on a mask and pretend that everything's okay. He doesn't offer up songs of praise to God about all the good things that he's done. He doesn't mention God's attributes and say you are holy and wonderful and loving. Instead, what does David do? David comes into the presence of God and he throws every single thing that he is feeling at the feet of God. He hides nothing. 
He says, I'm not an innocent man. I'm not like Job who's suffering for things that are not in his control. I'm a man who has sinned and whatever I'm experiencing right now, and it doesn't say what it is, it is because of things that I have done. There are things that I have done that are causing this pain. I am feeling your wrath for my sin. It is your discipline that is pressing down on me. And I am troubled in body and I am troubled in soul. Death feels like it is on my doorstep, but God, this is deserved, it is earned, it is merited, but God, I cannot take it anymore. Save me. How much longer? How much more? He is a man who is throwing everything at the feet of his God because he recognizes that while he may have sinned and he may have fallen short, and though everything may be his fault, that he comes still into the presence of a God who does not turn his people away. When I think about the things I'm struggling with and coming to God in prayer, this is not the way I typically think of approaching God. I think I have to list off all the things I'm thankful for. I think I have to confess specifically all the sins that I've committed and then eventually maybe get to those things where I'm struggling and, and then I probably will cover them up and not be completely honest about what I'm feeling. And David says, drop all of it. There are times to praise the Lord. There's times to confess your sin and there are times just to take your anguish and your brokenness and to throw it at the feet of your Savior because he is the only one before whom you can be fully known and to whom you can share anything and know that he will not walk away. He says, come with your anguish. And then in verses four to seven, he says, make your appeal. You know, when we come to God, uh, typically we, we make requests, don't we? We come into his presence and we ask him for the things that we want, but we always hedge. We'll say, Lord, you know, my mother is sick. Please heal her, but not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I'm wrestling with this sin, this sin that has enslaved me. It is pervasive. It will not go away. Set me free from this bondage, but I know it will be in your timing, in your way. Lord, my friend just betrayed me, and I need your comfort. Comfort me now. Heal me now. Restore the relationship, but not my will, but yours be done. We make requests of God, we ask him for things, but always we hold back just a little bit because we're afraid that what we're asking it is selfish or imprudent or we're intruding into space where we should not be. But look, again, David does something that is absolutely insane looking. David doesn't make a request of God. David argues with him. He's a lawyer in court coming to God and saying, here is who you were supposed to be, be this way. He appeals first to God's love. Look at verse four. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. Not for the sake of my goodness, not because I'm gonna offer you something in return. Save me for this reason and this reason alone, for the sake of your steadfast love. David is coming to God and saying, God, be who you are. Be who you've revealed yourself to be. Be who you have promised to be. Be the God who intervened in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, be the God 
who though his people have been unfaithful and they have sinned and they have fallen and they are suffering because of those sins, who whenever they have cried, whenever they have called out for help, always you have answered, I am a sinner, but I know this, you are the God who saves sinners. Be who you are and be that now. You know, if you want to put it in words that are maybe more familiar to us, it might sound like this. Heavenly Father, you have shown your love for me in this. While I was still a sinner, you sent your son to die for me. And if you so loved me then, if you so cared for me then when I was dead and lost and there was nothing good in me, how much more now? How much more now that I am one of your own? Be who you are. Are. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And David, David doesn't stop there. He appeals to God's love, and then he appeals to God's glory. Verse 5 For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now we want to be careful with what we do here because David is not here saying that there is no such thing as life after death. You know, all you have to do is look at other parts of Scripture to see that that's not what he means. But David is saying something important. David is saying that in death, there is something real, something tangible that you and I lose. Earlier this year, a friend of mine began to have just some health symptoms that were a little strange, and he wasn't worried about it extremely, but he thought, you know, I may as well go to the doctor, and most likely I'm gonna walk into the doctor's office. He's gonna hear these symptoms and say, stop being a hypochondriac, you're fine. But just in case, I wanna check it out. And so he went to the doctor, and he told the doctor all the things that he was feeling and experiencing, and the doctor said, maybe you're fine. But this could also be symptomatic of something much more serious. And so I want you to take some tests right now so we can find out the results as quickly as possible because if this is what it might be, not what it is for sure, but if this is what it might be, that might mean that you only have a little while. That there is treatment you need right now and so we have to figure out what is going on with you. And so my friend, he walked out of that doctor's office and he suddenly found himself confronted with something that he had never before considered that death was something that might not be far off, but near. And he said for the first time, he began to ask questions about the things that really matter. About what in his life he had done that had actual significance. About what those things were that if he died, he would miss or wish that he had done. When you think of death, What are the things you are afraid of losing? Is it experiences that you'll wish you've had? Is it your family? Is it to taste the fruits of all the years of hard work, all the things that you've labored to possess? Is it the chance to finally see your favorite sports team achieve that national title they so desperately want? What will you miss? David says, here's what I'm afraid of losing. It's not experience. It's not places I wished, I'll have wished I had traveled to. It's not my kingdom. It's not my possessions. It's not my family. 
Here's what I'm afraid of losing. The ability to give my life as a sacrifice of praise to my God. Because when I die, there will be no more praise to bring. I will have no more life to give. And the glory that my God deserves, it will be a glory that I can no longer offer to him. So he says to his God, for the sake of your glory, save me. That for at least one more day, I can praise your name. And I can give you my life, body and soul, to honor you as you deserve. He appeals to God's love. He appeals to God's glory. And then he appeals to something that I find absolutely beautiful. He appeals to God's compassion. I'm weary, verse six, with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Have you ever stopped and looked at that and thought, that's weird? I mean, why in the world does David, in the middle of a prayer, suddenly stop and start going cure song emo to God about his tears? Why is he waxing poetic about the tears that are suddenly being soaked up by his pillow like a sponge? Why is he bringing to God's attention his tossing and his turning at night? Why in the world would he think this could possibly be relevant to God? Because David recognizes what I am far too prone to forget. The God he calls on, this is not a God of indifference. This is not a God who shrugs his shoulders at our pain. This is a God of deep, tender compassion whose heart is moved by the plight of his people and when his heart is moved he does not sit still earlier this year I was hanging out in my basement at like five in the morning with my three little girls because they all decided that sleep was you know for other people and we were hanging out down there, and I have, if you don't know, I have three little girls. The oldest is three and a half. Her name is Mary Neal. And then the younger two are twins who are 22 months old, Lucy and Alice. And if you've ever tried to do anything in the morning that requires quiet and concentration, like read your Bible and pray, uh, that's difficult on its own. It's really hard with three under the age of four. They're sprinting around the chair, they're jumping up and down, they're screaming and screeching and pulling each other's hair, so it's a little bit of a chaotic kind of disaster zone. But on this particular morning, uh, Lucy decided to do something that she does all the time. She decided that she wanted to climb up on top of the coffee table. Now, before you judge me as a terrible parent, let, let me explain a little bit about this coffee table. It's only about 12 inches tall, the edges are, you know, they're not, it's not foam, but they're not exactly dangerous. She's not likely to fall off and hurt herself. And Lucy, of all my children, Lucy's the most cautious. Uh, Lucy's the one who will kind of shimmy up on top of the coffee table, and then she'll crawl to the middle. She'll stand up at the exact center of the coffee table. She'll dance around and stomp her feet, clap her hands, and she'll go, ugh, and look at me with this big grin like I'm supposed to do something. And so then I'll clap my hands, and I'll go, ugh, back, and she smiles, sits on her butt, scoots off, and that's it. Rinse and repeat over and over. Well, on this particular morning, that's what Lucy's doing. 
She's climbing up on the little coffee table. She's walking to the center. She's stomping her feet and clapping her hands. And I won't make that noise at you again. I'll spare you. And I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'd look up for my Bible. I'd clap my hands and I'd go back. And she would grin and that would be it. Well, we do that. And I look down at my Bible and I start trying to read it again. Well, out of the corner of my eye, I see my oldest daughter moving towards Lucy. And it becomes very clear very quickly that while I'm totally fine with Lucy being on top of this coffee table, Mary Neal, Mary Neal is not. And she comes up to her sister and I hear her say something which I can't quite make out. And the next thing I know, Mary Neal has her hands around Lucy's throat and she has body slammed her off of the coffee table onto the ground. Like full on pro wrestling feet in the air suplex to the mat to my 22-month-old. And I do what any parent in that situation would do. Everything goes into slow motion and I'm trying to get out of the chair and across the room and I'm yelling, like not, not calm, not gentle. I am yelling, Mary, kneel! And I'm moving across the room and I grab Mary, kneel, and I put her on the couch and I say, you stay put. And then I pick up Lucy and I pull her into my arms and she's totally fine. Weeping, terrified, but fine. No scratches, no bruises, no bumps, just confused as to why her sister would body slam her from a coffee table. And I am rocking her and going, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And in my head, I'm thinking, what do I do to Mary Neal? Like there has to be some kind of discipline. She can't just body slam her sisters like someone will die. This has to be fixed. So I've got to do something epic, something she'll remember. And as I'm thinking about this, I turn and I look at Mary Neal and suddenly everything comes to a stop. Because here's what I see. My little girl, Mary Neal, she is sitting exactly where I left her. She's not making a sound. She's trembling. And there are tears pouring down her cheeks. And she is looking at me with her eyes wide open in ab terror. And suddenly all the anger, all the frustration, every single bit of it just washed away. Why? It's not because Mary Neal was innocent. She wasn't. It's not because I thought maybe I'd overreacted, though it's quite possible that I, I did. I'm quick to anger sometimes. It's that I could not look at my little girl and see her tears and not feel compassion. David says, that's just a pale shadow of what God's heart is like. This is a God who is not indifferent to the tears of his people. This is a God who is moved by them. And it is a compassion that is appealed to all through the Psalms. In Psalm 39, it says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace. And notice this, at my tears. Psalm 56, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Literally, you remember every time I've tossed and turned at night because I'm worried and afraid. God, you know this. You put my tears in your bottle. Every tear I have cried, you have stored it. In your book, they are written. You've counted their number. 
And that care, that compassion that the psalmist appeals to all through the psalms, it is a compassion that we see perfectly in the face of Jesus, isn't it? Because who's Jesus? Jesus is the one who in the gospels, when he sees a crowd of 5,000, and he sees that they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It says in the text that Jesus, seeing that crowd and seeing their plight, his heart was moved with compassion for them. So he feeds them. Jesus is the one who, when he sees the widow of Nain in the Gospel of Luke, this woman whose son has just died, who already has no husband, and now because of her son's death, she has no future. And he sees this woman weeping weeping for her son's death, but also weeping for her own because she feels like it has come. Jesus sees this woman, and the text says again, he was moved with compassion for her. Jesus is the one who, when Lazarus' friend has died, and Lazarus's sister Mary comes and throws herself at his feet and said, if you had just been here, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus is the one, the text says, whose heart was moved within him. And he's the one who, when he stood before the tomb of Lazarus, it says that Jesus wept. He's the one who, when Paul was still an enemy of Christ's church, and he was on the road to Damascus to persecute God's people, Jesus is the one who appears to Saul, which was his name at the time, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not my church, but what does he say? Me. He is a God who so identifies with the tears of his people that he claims them as his very own. And when he sees them in need, his heart is moved within him and he cannot stand still. David knows it. David is saying, here's how you come to your God. You come with your anguish. You appeal to his love, you appeal to his glory, and you appeal to his compassion because it overflows. And notice how the psalm ends. Not with despair, not with David wondering where his hope's going to come from. It ends instead with assurance. Come with your anguish, make your appeal, receive your assurance. Look at verse eight. Depart from me. All you workers of evil, all my enemies, all who stand against me, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the sound of David's tears falling to his pillow, a sound that all the world missed, that all the world ignored. He says, God, it was a sound that echoed in the halls of heaven. You heard my plea. The prayers that I uttered, they were not prayers that flew away in the wind. They were prayers that found the ear of God himself. And here's the key. Here's the part that should still your hearts. The Lord didn't just hear his weeping. The Lord didn't just hear his plea. Notice what he says next. The Lord accepts my plea. He doesn't just hear it. He gives it his yes and his amen. So much so that David could look at his enemies in the very next verses and say, you should start running now. Because while deliverance isn't here yet, while salvation has not yet come in full, it is coming. And you will not be able to stand on that day, so I would start running if I was you. He's assured. Which leads us to this question. 
Maybe David has that kind of assurance. But how can you and I know that that same assurance exists for us? Here's how you can know. Because there's a greater David who prayed this prayer. There's a greater David who took this psalm and put it on like a cloak. One who, unlike David and unlike you and unlike me, was innocent and without sin and without guilt, and yet he stood in our place and he bore the wrath of God for our sins. He bore the rebuke that we deserved. There is one who was more troubled in body and soul than any man before him or any man after, one who knew communion with his father from all eternity past, and yet on the cross in that moment says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? who is surrounded by enemies more powerful than David could ever dream, and one who sat in a garden before his crucifixion, and Hebrews 5 says he did this. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to his father, to him, who was able to save him from death. And notice the language, he was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. Here's our assurance. It's that while Jesus was not spared from death, he was saved from it. And when the father heard Jesus' prayer, he heard all the prayers of every single person who approached him in his son's name. So much so that he can say, when you cry to me, when you bring your anguish and you make your appeal for the sake of my son, you may not be spared from death. You may not be spared from pain. But you can be assured of this. You will be saved from it. Because where my son is, there too, there too you will be. Come with your anguish. Make your appeal. And receive in Jesus the one who prayed this prayer on your behalf, receive in Jesus your assurance. There is a God of compassion who hears your tears, who says to you, as you live in the brokenness of this world, do not hide your tears, do not hide your pain, do not hide your struggle, but bring every single bit of it to me because I am the one who in Jesus can heal. And I am the one who in Jesus will one day wipe away every single tear that you have shed. That's the hope of lament. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for a God who hears our tears. Lord, a God who is more aware of our need and of our brokenness, whose heart is more tender than any person that we have ever met, than anything we could ever imagine. Lord, a God whose love runs so deep that the heights and the depths and the lengths and the widths, Lord, we could not even comprehend them apart from the power of your spirit. Lord, this is a well that will never run dry. This is something to which we will never find the bottom. But Lord, we find all these things and more in you. And so we ask, take this truth, take this gospel and apply it like a balm to our hearts. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.